Hey friends, Meg Meredith here, your host on this podcast. Look, we live in a polarizing world. There's plenty that we can disagree on, but I'm pretty passionate about the fact that people and stories matter. In fact, I kind of think it's the point of life, people and stories. Sometimes we'll agree, sometimes we won't. Either way, there's always something we can talk about. Hello, welcome. My guest today is a bestselling author, a blogger, and a podcaster. She has several books out, including The Great Sex Rescue, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, 31 Days to Great Sex, and Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. I will say that if y'all have been listening for very long or reading my blog, that you know that I am not in that evangelical world anymore. I grew up in a Southern evangelical space and I would find myself more on the progressive side of Christianity these days. But I sincerely appreciate the work of my guest and and the call outs that she is doing towards that evangelical space, even though her work seems to reflect still being inside of that space. And we may even disagree on things like the definition of marriage and who it includes or how we interpret the Bible, but that's not really the point. The whole point is I don't have to see eye to eye with everyone on everything. My guest and I, Sheila Ray Gregoire, had plenty to talk about. So, y'all ready? Let's go. Welcome, Sheila Ray Quangra. Thank you for being here with me today. I was first introduced to you and your work through another podcast, You Have Permission, and I was kind of instantly enamored with the work that you're doing around sexuality inside the evangelical church. And so, as one does, I always tend to follow you on Instagram and uh, reading to the blog. And I even had friends sending me posts and things that were kind of sort of synchronicity um, about things that I was posting, obviously on a smaller scale, um, but just kind of talking about the same things. And so I'm, I'm so glad that you were here and willing to speak with me today on this episode. But for ministers that may not be familiar with you or your work, why don't you introduce yourself and share with us about kind of how all of this work around sexuality and sex got started and how it's going. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I started in around 2008. I started mommy blogging, you know, like your typical parenting, housework, organizing blog. And the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. And so I kind of morphed into this sex place, which was never my intention originally. Um, and then in 2012, I had my first big book out, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. And I was just sharing, you know, marriage and sex info that was helpful and healthy for years. Um, and I kind of assumed that that's what everybody else was doing too. And then in 2019, everything changed for me because it was, it was a Friday afternoon. I had a migraine, didn't want to work. And I was on Twitter and people were arguing, um, women were arguing that they needed respect and not just love. And they were, they were referring to Emerson Egrich's big best-selling book, Love and Respect, which claims that women need love and men need respect. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm a woman and I need respect too. And I realized I had that book upstairs, but I'd never read it. And I thought this is an amazing way to procrastinate. So I went upstairs and I got the book 
and being the sex person that I am, I opened it to the sex chapter to read first, which is actually like almost one of the last chapters in the book. And it's in the section of what men need. So it's the section for wives about what men need. And I read to my horror, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. And the need is for physical release. And it's, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so unhealthy. And I had, I had never realized that other books in the evangelical space were that bad because I'd never read any, cause I was afraid of plagiarizing. So for the next week, we talked about this book on the blog. Um, we had, we were just inundated with stories from women who said that this book enabled abuse in their marriage. And that kind of signaled that we needed to change direction because for years I had been given, giving what I considered healthy advice. And it wasn't really getting, giving women the breakthrough that they needed. And I realized it was because we're holding on to these harmful things. So that's when we decided to do this huge survey, 20,000 women to try to figure out if there are certain teachings specifically in the evangelical space that hurt marriage and sex for women. So I did a survey this year about purity culture, and I had 76 people fill it out, and I felt really proud of that. And it had about 25 questions, but I was listening to an episode yesterday with you and your daughter, and you guys were saying that your survey was 169 questions. Is that correct? Yeah, minimum. Some people had more. It really depended on whether they were, like, if they were married for the second time, then they had more. It was it was long. It was like half an hour of your life. <laughs> so if any of your listeners ever took it, thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Well, so my next question is, where did you find all of these women? Like, how did you reach out to 20, over 20,000 women? Uh, we, well, I got about, I got under, just under half from my own social media channels and newsletter list. And then I had contests going where people could refer, like they could get their own referral link, get people to take the survey. And then the top referrers were going to win certain prizes. And I got other bloggers sending out referral links. So I had all kinds of stuff going on to incentivize people to send out the link. Oh my goodness. I just learned something. That's what I should have done was had incentives and prizes. <laughs> so all of these findings then turned into The Great Sex Rescue, your book. And so for my listeners that haven't heard of that or haven't read it yet, why don't you give us a brief overview of what that book's about? Yeah, so it turned into The Great Sex Rescue, which we identified four big teachings that really wreck things for women that really make things just awful. <laughs> and so we try to dismantle those things and show a healthier way of looking at sex in the great sex rescue. And then since then I've also um, written some other things. We've done a bunch of other surveys. We did a survey of men. We did a survey of women um, with their youth group experiences and another book that's coming out in the spring. But yeah, we're just really trying to shed light on hey, people, this isn't healthy. We need right. to stop this because right. this isn't good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually remember all four of these um, being taught these, and I'm going to go ahead and call them lies. So why don't you go into what those four lies are? Well, I kind of think about it like in Lord of the Rings terminology, like, you know, that there's one ring to rule them all. And, you know, that that one ring that brings everything together is this idea that sex is for men and not for women. You know, so Emerson Egrich's line, if your husband's typically as a need you don't have. So that would be the one overarching thing. But then, and so all four of the teachings kind of stem from that. And things like all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. You know, we're taught that male sexuality and the objectification of women are one and the same thing, which makes sex very ugly for women. Um, things like you need to have frequent sex with your husband to help him not watch porn. 
Very harmful. Um, saying to teenage girls that boys will push your sexual boundaries. And so you need to be the gatekeeper. Uh, and then especially the most harmful one that we measured was um, what we call the obligation sex message so that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. So one of the reasons that I was really thrilled to have you on today was because we're in the middle of a purity culture series on the show and kind of going over the purity culture survey results that we did, which is obviously just on the kind of like a local Southern level. Um, and you're doing kind of huge national level, which is really cool just to see that there's different pockets of people talking about the exact same things. And so I wonder if you have specific findings on purity culture. I know that a lot of this is kind of overarching general sexuality messagings. I know I received that. I remember receiving that from the pulpit. They're talking about sex after marriage. and But a lot of these same themes, those four things that you mentioned, and that overarching, the one, one ring to rule the wall, is all kind of tied back to purity culture that we receive as very young, impressionable girls. Do you have specific findings that show that as well? Yeah, we did. And a lot of the, the like, for instance, um, the all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. If you're taught that as a teenager, that all males struggle with lust, um, it is going to decrease your libido in the long term. And it's going to decrease your trust in your husband. Even if you're taught it before you even meet your husband, even if you don't believe it, that, this is, that was the one teaching where even if you don't believe it, if you're merely taught it, it has negative repercussions long-term. And I think the reason is because if you grow up in a church, which believes this because they're teaching it, <laughs> you're just going to grow up in a church, which is, which where male sexuality is just threatening, where everything feels icky. And, and that has long-term repercussions. We also found two other beliefs that we didn't look at so much in the great sex rescue. They're looking, um, one in particular, we're looking at more in our, in our upcoming book, on teenage girls is the soul ties belief. So the idea that if you have sex with, with someone, you give a piece of yourself away, and then it's harder to, to emotionally connect with your spouse when you're married. Um, that is another extremely destructive belief. Yeah. And, uh, and, and just the idea, and, and again, the idea that boys will push your sexual boundaries. So teaching a lot of these things to teenage girls then impacts how they see sex once they're married. And it makes things much worse. You know, the idea that um, that all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, so he can't help it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's on you to yeah. stop him from struggling with lust. So you are dangerous. Your body is dangerous. You simply existing near a man poses a threat to him, as opposed to him posing a threat to you. <laughs> like. Right. Like, right. let's be honest about this. Right. Um, but women are perceived as threats mm -hmm. and our specifically our bodies are perceived as threats. Mm -hmm. And this, this impacts how women see sex because sex is now a threatening thing to them. And when you combine that, uh, like for instance, Shanti Felden in her book for young women, only for teenage girls, um, she did a survey and I, I need to put a caveat in here, which is that I believe this survey question was very poorly worded. I believe her interpretation of the answers was not correct. And so I'm going to give you a stat that I do not feel is correct because I think she did her survey wrong. Um, but she asked boys, if you're in a makeout situation with a girl who's enthusiastic, um, how likely are you to want to stop? 
And her conclusion based on what the boys said was that 82% of boys feel little ability or little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. And then she highlights what one boy, one survey respondent said, if you want to stop, it's safest to not even start. That's rape culture. Yeah. Like, can you imagine yeah. telling girls that 82% of boys feel little ability to stop? Mm-hmm. That's just not even true. But girls grow up feeling like the gatekeeper. And notice too that that when we frame it that way, that boys will push girls' sexual boundaries, then when a boy does push her sexual boundaries, she doesn't feel like that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. She doesn't realize, oh, wait, this means he has bad character. This means I'm not safe. This means this relationship is bad. This means I need to get out. Mm -hmm. She sees it. Well, this is just how boys are. Mm -hmm. And I may have made it too difficult for him by letting him kiss me too long. In fact, I was the threat to him because I didn't put the brakes on and then he couldn't help himself. Yes, exactly. And this is honestly the reason that I'm pretty passionate about purity culture and even all of this conversation around sex and the evangelical church and the things that we're taught is because I'm actually a survivor myself. And I will tell you that I there's this innate thing that when we're raised this way and, and we're taught these things, um, we have this sense of responsibility if something happens to us like this, even in the realm of this, that we as females then just take on that responsibility. We kind of strap it on that it's just it's it's like automatic that we do that and we we blame ourselves. And oftentimes that blame is coming from the outside. What were you wearing? How were you sitting? You know, they want to know the scenario because there's these things and it's like somehow it's your fault and then shoulda woulda couldas that we have in our own brains kind of survivor guilt but then but then there's outside forces that are that are telling us that it is our fault and we've been taught that from the very beginning that it's our fault that we could have stopped that we could have prevented it that it's on us our wardrobe our posture our words, everything is then, just like you're saying, we're the gatekeepers of their lust and their actions. And so it it's just really, it's really harmful when it's, it's our responsibility. And then yet something happens to us that's assault or abuse or rape. And, and we will naturally take on that fault, even though it's not our it's not our fault and it's not our burden to bear the guilt of someone else's actions and wickedness. Yeah. And if boys can't help it, then the only way to stay safe and is, is for us to do exactly the right thing. And so we need to tell ourselves that there must be some right thing I can do to make me feel safe. And so it, it becomes almost our own defense mechanism to blame ourselves, because if we're not to blame then we live in a very unsafe world because all men will do this to us. Mm-hmm. So we have to accept the blame because the alternative is too terrible. But what no one tells us is that actually all men do not act that way. You can expect better. And if someone does that to you, that wasn't your fault. That's a sign of a fault in them, not in you. Right. One of the other pieces to that, I think, is um, this piece about kind of protecting reputations of spiritual leaders. We're going to get to this actually when we talk about the pushback that the book is getting. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I these two things just kind of connected in my brain. You were talking on your latest episode about how all the pushback seems to be 
um, centering around kind of protecting their reputation rather than doing the right thing or apologizing or whatever they need to do to kind of correct those previous messages. They seem more intent on um, maintaining their status, maintaining their authority, you know, if you want to call it that. And I even love that you said <laughs> that personal experience is not enough to write a book on sex. I just really loved that. I just want to throw that quote in there. Um, but I I distinctly remember being a part of this kind of paradigm and institution where um, it was our job to sort of protect the men at the top. And it's even our job to protect the men of the youth group, the boys of the youth group and their lust. That's kind of the whole idea was like we existed to protect their reputation. And I knew how to <laughs> I was very skilled at knowing how to diffuse a situation. I knew how to not piss a man off, you know? And I even think about some of the other messaging in these books about, and you've touched on this on your Instagram through the, I fixed it for you. If you guys haven't seen that, go to her Instagram because they're, they're sometimes really cringy and really hilarious, the things that these pastors say that then she fixes the words for. Um, but you kind of talk about this where um, it centers around the male in that relationship and the woman then is there to sort of protect and uphold his status or or um, not making, I remember there was one recently and I'm going to quote it or misquote it or attribute it wrong to the wrong person. I think it was John Piper talking about, you know, kind of not upsetting your husband, like not pissing him off basically, that that was also her responsibility and that really resonated with me because I remember that being the center of a lot of things, a lot of conversations being about how to sort of diffuse the situation with the man rather than the man being responsible for the way that he treats women. And just to tie that back to purity culture, it just seems to me through even just talking to to people through my survey that that so much of purity culture kind of was under this ruse of protecting women, but really, in all actuality, it was to protect men, which is just so it's just so backwards, and it left so many women feeling vulnerable. And and even inside this this context of of marital sex, if if everything is revolving around him, then it really leaves the wife feeling vulnerable, and it's just it's just so backwards. It is. It's totally backwards, and. I think I think I had a lot of naivety going into this project. You know, I, I'm in a very academic family. I've grown up in academia. I have several postgraduate degrees. I'm one of the least educated in my family because I don't have a PhD. Like, I'm, you know, like we're just an academic family. Yeah. And so to me, whenever I see evidence, it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that is how the world works. So this needs to shift my thinking. And I sort of assumed that other people would react the same way. Like if I can just show them the evidence that, hey, when you believe this, her orgasm rate plummets, that that would matter to people. Because I have shifted so much of what I teach once I started looking at the evidence. And I've taken books out of print. I've revised other books. I've taken podcasts down. I just rebranded my entire blog and I, I moved to a new domain. And I only took a thousand posts with me instead of my 3000 because I... Yeah. You know, I'm just not sure how much I believe of what I wrote 10 years ago anymore. Yeah. And I don't know if I can stand behind it. And I just don't think that should be strange. Right. I think that should be just how we operate. There's nothing wrong with that. Nobody's mad at me about that. Nobody says, oh, Sheila, I can't believe that, that you said bad things before. No, what people are saying is, wow, that's amazing that you'll own that because mm -hmm. it's not a big deal. Right. 
Right. Like we're supposed to grow, right? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of thought that these authors would take a look and say, yeah, you know what? I really worded that badly. And I should just, I should change that in the next edition and I should just put out a statement about it. Cause yeah, you know, I, I don't mean to cause harm and I said that badly and I said that wrong, but no, instead people are just going after us. Yeah. It's so hard to watch the church respond badly. I know there's quite a lot of that going around with all of the scandals in the headlines. It just seems like everyone is sort of just hunkering down instead of responding appropriately. I I know I'm just starting grad school, but I already see inside the academic world that you're speaking of, the scientific community, that there is always sort of evolution of information. There's always new findings. There's always new results. There's always new experiments. And they're just willing to go, oh, we we find new things. We learn new things and we do differently. We teach differently. We observe the world differently. And I think that's really the point of life. But I think it speaks to that sort of fixed mentality that a lot of evangelical churches have of, um, you know, of course, they don't believe in any sort of evolution, but they also don't necessarily see growth the same way that I think a lot of outside or more progressive um, schools of thought would see that. But instead, so often what you see in religious institutions and specifically evangelical institutions is you see this sort of grappling for control. They want to double down and maintain their authority and their power and their position and their name. And even those book royalties, they don't want to lose those. And then and then you see them kind of circling the wagons and vilifying whoever is holding them accountable. And I see that on so many levels right now, not just um, pushback about books and former teachings, but just within the SBC, you see that right now. And I just think that's a huge red flag because I think when someone reacts that way, when they're not even open to feedback, when they're not open to accountability, I think it really just shows that they've been benefiting from the abuse. So I think I've referenced this without actually explaining it enough. Um, for those of you who don't know, the, the book is actually receiving some pretty heavy pushback. Um, even as of late, some kind of aggressive demonstrations and threats of lawsuits. Because in your book, Sheila, you are you're specifically calling out other authors. Is that fair to say? Yeah, because part of it. So we, we sort of had a four pronged research project. So the first was the big survey, 20,000 women. Yeah. Then we did a thorough literature review. So we read everything we could on what helps women reach orgasm, what increases marital satisfaction, all the peer-reviewed stuff. And we did a thorough literature review on that. And then we created this rubric so that we could judge, like we had 12 markers of healthy sexuality teaching based on our lit review and our survey. And um, we looked at the top 10 marriage books in the evangelical world and six iconic sex books. And we judged them according to the rubric. And we read them and I pulled quotes from them and everything. And most of the books scored really badly. And we quote liberally from them in the book, like just as an example of a really bad quote, uh, every man's battle says 
um, when you quit cold turkey, she can be like a merciful vial of methadone for you. So it treats women as the methadone for your husband's sex addiction. So you're trying to get over lust. And instead, what you do is you go to your wife for 10 bowls of sexual gratification. I don't know what 10 bowls have said, but that's what they say. 10 bowls of sexual gratification a week. Another example is Kevin Lehman and sheet music calls your period a difficult time for your husband. (laughs) I just, I can't. Yes. He actually says that your period is a difficult time for your husband and that this one woman learned um, that giving him oral sex uh, during her period helps him stay faithful and not watch porn. And she learned that faithfulness is a two-person job because you can't expect a man to go five days without release if you want him to not to watch porn, apparently. you know. So these are some examples of the things that we pulled out and we said, hey, <laughs> look, <laughs> you know, we measured this. And this is totally toxic and disastrous. Right. right. And we need to stop. Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually read all of these books, you know, growing up in purity culture, then when you're engaged and getting married, if you were like me and um, did wait until you got married to have sex and you followed purity culture to the letter, then you didn't have any clue (laughs) what was coming or even you know, you didn't know anything about arousal cycles or um, any of that stuff that you really need to know. You didn't know anything about your body. And so you're kind of like a sponge soaking up all of these marriage and sex books that, um, again, or like evangelical approved. And so I grew up on these books. I've actually read all of them. And I can personally speak to the harm that they do. And the sad part to me, as I'm reading the book and listening to your your podcast, is that all of this advice that was being given to us, you know, I mean, this was like 20 years ago, even I was reading most of these books, that all this advice was homogenized. Everybody's saying the exact same things. Every Everything is in that sort of complementarian scenario and in that submissive scenario. And all of the ideals are homogenized and no one's saying anything different. It was all very like, this is, this is the biblical view which it just makes me laugh when people label things as like biblical, because I'm pretty sure the Bible was never intended to be sort of this like sex manual. <laughs> I just think that that it was like labeled as like, this is God's way and this is like the secular way. And we weren't supposed to know anything about the secular way because that wasn't God's way. But there's just such a lack of education. And and so then all of the advice that we're getting on what God thinks about marriage is this kind, is the harmful kind. And the saddest part about all of this advice, and and even throwing back to purity culture, is that all of this is sort of under the banner of like wanting sex to be great in, in the name of God kind of thing. But then ultimately what it really did was tainted it and and sort of in some ways ruined it for us. Because the essential thing is that it it changes the very nature of sex. Because, you know, God's design for sex is something which is mutual. So it's it's everything, like if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, which is very weaponized verses against women, but if you actually look at what they say, everything that she gets, he gets, and everything he gets, she gets. It's completely mutual. Song of Solomon, we know sex is really pleasurable. And then Genesis 4, verse 1, that really strange verse, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. You know, the, the Hebrew root that is used there is the same as is, is used in Psalms when it says, search me and know me, O God. Mm-hmm. No, it's saying sex is something which is profoundly intimate. Yeah. It's this spiritual intimacy, this oneness. And so, you know, God designed sex to be intimate, mutual, pleasurable for both. And we have turned it into an obligation to give him physical release. Mm-hmm. 
And it's amazing how many books actually call sex physical release, like love and respect does it. Power of a praying wife does it. Every man's battle does it. Um, you know, that, that his need is for physical release and you need to give him release. Mm -hmm. And you just can't picture Song of Solomon talking about how he needs release or an Adam got release from Eve. Like it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's such a distortion. That reminds me of a question that we asked on our survey, which again, ours is not nearly as scientific as yours and much, much smaller scale. But we asked, you know, if they were taught that masturbation was a sin. And of course, it was in the 90s that they all said yes, that that was, you know, preached from the pulpit in the youth groups that, that masturbation was a sin. And yet then when you're married, you're then the wife, the wife is required to help the husband release. So it's almost acknowledging that that release is normal, that that arousal cycle and release is normal. But then somehow it's it's our obligation to move him through that when, you know, he was probably doing it by himself before. And it rem reminds me of something I've heard once before, and I don't know who, who to attribute it to. I'll go fact check that later. And this wasn't necessarily a, a Christian person saying this was, this was just a sex education and kind of intimacy coach saying this, but but he was saying that if you're not experiencing emotional intimacy with a person, if you're not cultivating that in the relationship and you don't really even care about that, that you're really just masturbating with each other, to each other, on each other. I don't know how to say that really. But but essentially then, you know, it's just it's just sex, kind of they they say it's just sex. But but really what that is, is is you needing that release. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is then it's somehow put on the wife that that's our obligation is to give him that release when when in all reality it's it's a natural outcome of two people experiencing emotional intimacy in a relationship of, of any kind. I, I just want to include my listeners that are not in the evangelical camp that this does apply to to everyone's sex life as well that that if you're not experiencing that intimacy then then it's really just selfish, right? Yeah, that brings me to the fourth research area that we had, which was we did focus groups as well. Mm -hmm. And this is what a lot of women told us who had come out of destructive marriages is we're always told that sex makes you feel closer, that sex enhances intimacy, that sex releases the bonding hormone and you feel really close. But for them, it, it made them feel more distant yeah. for many women, not every woman, but for many women in destructive marriages, sex made them feel more distant because he was using her mm -hmm. and she knew she was being used. Yeah. Like he's using me as a masturbatory aid. He doesn't care about me. He's using me. And if sex is supposed to be this deep, intimate knowing, and instead he approaches sex as I get to use you, then it's actually dehumanizing. Yeah. And it's depersonalizing. And it's the most empty thing you can experience. Mm -hmm. And yet so many of our Christian resources have taught women that this is the pinnacle and this is what they should be aiming for. Mm -hmm. So some of these authors that you call out in your book are are friends and colleagues that you've kind of collaborated with and worked with before. Can you kind of speak to when and maybe what caused you to kind of like your paths diverge and you to kind of say, actually, kind of thinking about things differently? Yeah, I I think I, I I've always believed that women and men are meant to be equal and that God wants women following him. And the idea that a woman follows God by following her husband makes no sense yeah. because it's putting up a mediator between God 
in in women. Um, and that isn't biblical. You know, she has the Holy Spirit just as much as he do he does. And to me, um, the proper model is two people listening to the Holy Spirit and following him. So I've always believed that. But I was teaching a lot of the stuff about sex in similar ways uh, as most of the authors. You know, he needs it in a way that she'll never understand. He's visual in a way that that she'll never be. Um, and hey, women, you know, we need to understand how much our guys want this. Now, the good thing is I always taught, and this is good for you too. So let's figure out how to make it really great for you so that you'll want it too. So I always did teach that, that part, which most didn't, but I still did, did see it very much as a man's need and she needs to catch up. And then in just over the last few years, I've changed. And when I read Emerson Egerich's book, that really put the nail in the coffin for me. But I had been friends with people like Shanti Felton, uh, who, you know, teaches very problematic things and for women only and in some of her other books, for young women only through a man's eyes. I had been friends with Gary Thomas and his book, Sacred Marriage, actually scored quite well on our on our rubric about sex. We didn't measure the marriage teachings and I do have some issues with um, some of the marriage teachings, but about sex, it scored quite well. But then he wrote his own book that came out after Great Sex Rescue called Married Sex with Deborah Felita. And he had read Great Sex Rescue before he wrote his book. And he still gave a lot of the same messages. And he was also doing some weird things on social media. And so when I called him out on this, he he really, he really got quite upset. So that was hard, you know, because I, I did have these people's friends and I had, I had gone to them first. Uh, and privately and said, Hey, you, you know, here's what the research says. Would you like to reevaluate? I'll help you. Like we can do this together. I can involve you in the research project. And that's just not what anyone was interested in doing. I'm sure that's a little bit shocking and saddening, um, even considering the fact that you've gone back and you've rewritten books in light of your, your new findings, haven't you? Yeah, I totally rewrote The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Yeah. I begged my publisher because it's it was still selling well. And I'm like, I can't, I can't sell this anymore. I don't, right. like, I know it's still selling, but I can't talk about the book anymore because I can't stand behind it. And so I begged them and because they wanted me to write The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. And I was under contract for that. And I'm like, well, please let me rewrite The Good Girl's yeah. Guide. And yeah. thankfully they did. Yeah. So I completely gutted it and rewrote it. And I'm much happier with it now. <laughs> I think that's such a great example of knowing better and then doing better. It's just, I think it shows a lot of humility to be able to go back to your previous work and and revise it and say, actually, I can't see it by this anymore. I just think that's so beautiful. And I wish more people that were prominent figures and had platforms would be willing to do that. I, mean, I even think about Lizzo and Beyonce being willing to like, change lyrics. You know, I mean, these people, they're really big deals, you know, and yet they have the humility to go, actually, I don't want to be offensive. And so I'm going to go back and change that. I would be curious, you know, um, why you think these prominent pastors and authors, what keeps them from modeling the same thing that you're modeling, the the ability, you know, to be uncertain about things, to have ambiguity and and even like learning, to be able to learn from mistakes or learn from from years of experience and then and then model that from their books or from the pulpits with humility. I just I what what do you think keeps them from doing that? But yeah, thank you. But I I guess my big thing is I'm not asking anyone to do stuff I haven't done. Yeah. And I know it's not that hard. 
Mm. And I, I, I was talking to my husband, Keith, and, and he and I speak together at marriage conferences. He writes blog posts for me. He's on the podcast a lot, the Bear Marriage Podcast, and he co-authored The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. So, so he's very much in this with me. And I was like, I just don't understand. Like, why can't, why can't they apologize? Why can't, mm. like Tim Keller, for instance, he just said one stupid thing in his book that has been really harmful. Just one stupid anecdote where he says like, um, for years, if I said to her afterwards, how was that? And she said, it just hurt. I would be devastated and she would be too. And so then they learned um, not to aim for her pleasure, et cetera. But like that one anecdote, so many women said to me, I learned that pain was normal and that you shouldn't be speaking up during sex to tell him it hurts. You should be enduring it. Yeah. And people told him that. And instead of accepting it and saying, you know what? We worded that sentence really wrong. We never meant to give that impression. I'm going to rewrite that sentence in the next. They've just, they just got mad on social media at people. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not hard. So why don't people do it? My husband's, my husband's view is that um, in the evangelical church, so many people believe that, you know, God's word is unchanging. And if what I'm speaking is God's word, then I can't change it. Yeah. And there's not this idea that what we're actually teaching is our interpretation. Mm. We're not teaching God's word itself. Yeah. And we need to get more humble and realize, no, like <laughs> I am not the equivalent of scripture. I am simply sharing what my interpretation is and my interpretation can be wrong. Yeah. But when you think, no, what I am sharing is God's word, mm -hmm. then you can't ever backtrack. Man, that's good. Um, as we kind of start to wrap up here, um, obviously one of the big things to me is consent, just being a survivor myself, but also in our, our purity culture survey, um, we did several questions on consent and we found that 70% of our survey takers, which again, was only 76, but 70% of those people were never taught what consent was. And I know that, um, one of the things I love about your work that you're doing right now is that you really don't pull any punches, especially on the podcast. You are talking about some really hard hitting topics and you're not afraid to talk about marital rape and you're not afraid to talk about consent. And so I, I know that the Bible is often weaponized against women. And, and we've already kind of touched on that through other subjects as well, but especially on um, just being able to say no and feeling like you you have a voice it seems like a theme in a, in a lot of conversations that are happening around sex and purity culture and all of these things right now. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity um, to kind of speak directly to those women that maybe don't know that they have consent, but they don't know what consent is. So what would you say to a woman that has been shamed because the the Bible has been weaponized against her that, that feels like she can't say no, she can't say no to her husband, or she can't say no during sex, or she can't say no to a boyfriend, or she she has no voice inside her own sexuality. Yeah. So there's two different, there's two different um, uh, situations there. If it's just her, if she feels like I need to give him sex at least every 72 hours or bad things will happen and I won't be a good wife. And I, even if I'm in discomfort, whatever, I need to give him sexual favors. Even if I'm postpartum, I need to give him a hand, whatever it might be. Cause this is what we've been taught. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, we talked to so many women in our focus groups who got over that because their husbands proved to them it wasn't true. 
And for a lot of people, it took, it took maybe going on a sex fast for like two months and showing that he's not going to die. He's not going to watch porn. He's not going to lust. He's not going to treat her badly. Um, where he gave her permission to stop, even if they're in the middle of intercourse. And she's like, no, I changed my mind, you know, and, and he really empowered her to speak up. And that was so healing for so many women. And so if the reason that you don't feel like you can say no is because of these bad teachings, rope your husband in on it, you know, have him read the great sex rescue too, or listen to it. You can get it on audio and, and just, and just figure that out. If it's, if you feel like you can't say no, because your husband honestly will be grumpy or he will get angry, or something bad will happen. That is coercion. That is a form of sexual assault. And if you can't truly say no, then you can't say yes either. And that's something where that's rough to realize. Mm-hmm. And you may need to call a domestic violence hotline. You may need to, need to call a licensed therapist, depending on the severity. You know, sometimes, yeah, you need to get out. Sometimes it's just that he believed these messages too. And he's actually fundamentally a good guy. He's just believed really toxic stuff. And if he hears the great sex rescue, he'll change as well. And I've seen a lot of men do that. So, you know, some women are in seriously unsafe situations and some women it's just bad teaching. And so I can't comment on that, but I would say the biggest, the biggest priority is your safety. That's amazing. Thank you, Sheila. I always feel like this with a guest that there's always not enough time and too much to say. And Uh, especially with your book, there's just so much that I would love to cover. But unfortunately, we do have a time limit. But just let our friends and listeners know where they can find you and what's coming next for you. You can find me at baremarriage.com. I've got my books there, Great Sex Rescue, Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, our orgasm course, our libido course, teaching your kids about puberty and sex, all of that's there. And then in the fall, or sorry, in the spring, we've got our new book for moms of daughters, She Deserves Better. Um, coming out where our survey results of girls and youth group and purity culture is coming out. And that'll be really exciting. That's so exciting. I look forward to reading that one. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. This episode was a challenge purely because I think we had every technical difficulty that one could have when recording an interview. (laughs) I'm just really glad that it is an episode and we have the audio to prove it. So thanks for listening. I hope that some of this was helpful and thought-provoking. I hope that at the very least, you know you have permission to go back to anything that you were taught inside the church or outside the church about sex and question it. And you're free to decide what works for you and to do what aligns with you and what feels authentic. I know some of you specifically right now, the thought of letting someone in, being intimate, is scary as hell. (laughs) And it's the furthest thing that you're interested in. And so even sex feels possible right now. And I just want to say that if you listened all the way through this podcast, I'm really proud of you. Sometimes just to listen to a conversation about sex is triggering and hard. And so that's a really good step, just to be able to be open and listen to somebody else talk about sex. So I want you to know I'm proud of you. I want you guys to know that you're doing great. And none of us have the answers. None of us are actually certain about any of this stuff. And all of us do have stories. We have personal experience. And all that matters. That's the whole point of why we're here. Because you matter, and so does your story. So, 
Love you guys. Mina. We'll talk more soon.